Sup, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is July 3rd, 2020. When I saw that Jelaine Maxwell got arrested yesterday, I was like, there's only one person that I want to talk to. That is our in-house Jeffrey Epstein resident expert on all things having to do with him. That is, of course, the wonderful Whitney Webb. We're going to get to her in a second. Before we get started, I want to note that this podcast is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I am going to shout out some of my patrons. Then I am going to give you the two rules for the podcast. If you don't know, then we're going to get started with the interview. First and foremost, I want to shout out my dear friends over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion are my exclusive gold and silver providers. If you are looking to purchase gold and silver bullion, there's really no better place to do it than JM Bullion. I'm saying that not only because they support the podcast, but because I'm a customer. And that is now the only place that I buy gold and silver bullion. They have a wonderful track record that spans almost a decade and more than $3 billion in sales. They have a wonderful selection of inventory. They turn around their orders and ship them quickly. I really have had not not had anything other than wonderful experiences in dealing with them. Their stuff turns around and ships much quicker than most other sites. QTR podcast listeners have their own JM Bullion rep, so you get personalized service whenever you want it. Email my friend Kathy, that's K-A-T-H-Y, Kathy at jmbullion.com. Tell her you're a QTR podcast listener. Tell her you want a discount. Tell her you want free shipping. Tell her whatever you want. Tell her QTR sent you and uh, and to hook you up and make you a deal. JM Bullion, link is in my podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by my friend Pete Hedgetis over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a brand new, wonderful online day trading community that really beats the living shit out of all of the other day trading online communities. Because Pete started his service after he got tired and frustrated with other services that really are just cash grabs. They try to take your money. They try to front run your trades. They don't really give a shit about their members. They don't give a shit about their communities. And Pete wanted to start an investor community that was a little bit different, something that was a little bit more honest. So Pete's community offers a wide range of tools if you're a trader. They offer daily watch lists. They offer live streams so you can see what's going on on a daily basis, investor education. They trade in red markets. They trade in green markets. Uh, It's a great place to spread ideas, and especially now with the markets being as volatile as they are, a great place to surround yourself with other traders Uh, Pete, I know, is a nice guy to do business with. He's an honest person, so I have no problem shouting him out on the podcast. Hit up Pete, tell him QTR sent you, and tell him you want a discount too. He will make sure you get taken care of if you're interested in the trader's path. The link is in the podcast description. This podcast is also brought to you by some of the OGs of Unusual Options Activity. And I'm talking about my homeboy, Sang Lucci, Charlie Bathgate, who will be on the podcast, I think, next week. And Wall Street Jesus, wonderful follows on Twitter at Sanglucci at Wall Street Jesus, but also proprietors of the world famous Steam Room. The Steam Room is a wonderful piece of software that the Sanglucci group has been working on, updating, and just making fantastic over the last decade. It points out big money coming into the illiquid options market, which oftentimes can precede moves in the equities markets. What does that mean in layman's terms? It means they show you where the money's going, which oftentimes will point out the direction certain parts of the market will go. These guys are experts in tape reading. They are experts in market psychology. And they're also 
dear friends of mine and wonderful people to do business with. Sanglucci also offers the 3LT playbook, which is his playbook and the three rules of how he became a seven-figure trader. I have seen the brokerage statements. He's not lying about that. And he offers the Sanglucci Masterclass, which is his course in financial literacy without all the bullshit and jargon that some guy wearing a bow tie who plays squash and croquet is going to give to you because he went to fucking Harvard. Check out Sanglucci in the Steam Room. Those links are also in my podcast description. Reach out to Lucci. Tell him QTR sent you and you want a discount and I guarantee you he'll get it done for you. This podcast is also brought to you by my patrons that have signed up recently. I'm going to shout out a couple of those as soon as I get the damn thing. I'm never prepared for this podcast. This is my 200 and something episode of the podcast and I'm just, I'm never prepared. And I don't think that's ever going to change. So if you're hoping for me to get my shit together, you might as well stop listening now. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold. My friend Robert Mizello, shipping analyst Jay Mincemeyer. If you're into dry bulk and dry shipping stocks, check out Jay Mincemeyer. Russ Valenti, my longtime homeboy. Nicholas Parks out on the left coast. My brother Nathan Michaud from Traders for a Cause, which is my favorite charity. Chris Bede, my homeboy Ken R. Crichton Titus, Big Dog, Will Smith, Michelle Koenig, Dylan Davis, J.K. Cunningham, Stank Love. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the podcast. And finally... A couple people that have signed up recently, like my friend Chris Bell, thank you so much, and my homeboy Adam Bell actually just signed up. I had drinks with you the other day, uh, so I know who you are. <laughs> uh, my homeboy Jay Powell signed up. Don't tell the Fed, all right? How about that? Alan Weber, thank you. My friend Brian Pearson, Brad Potter, and Dutch Cruz, and some people that have been with me for a little while, like Matt Malecki. Q is still in the house. Thank you. Stephen Clark, Phil Menards. Uh, Vaclav Kosar, thank you so much. Nicholas Bradley. Uh, Jeff Barnes has been down since December 2019. Thank you, my brother. My friend Bruno Gallo is still with me, dating back to July. One year anniversary for you. Thank you, brother, for your continued support. All right, let's get started. It's time for Red Pill Rabbit Hole time. There's two rules to the podcast if you never listened before. The first is a two-drink minimum is required. We're in in the midst of a three-day weekend like we are now. Really, two drinks is the bare minimum, folks. If you're not, if you don't have two in your system by 12 noon on a Friday when the markets are closed, I'm not really sure what you're doing with your life. But you know, maybe this is your first time listening, and you can always play catch up too. You know, just uh, you don't have to pregame the podcast like many of my people do, but you can you can catch up here. There's still a minute left in the intro, so put two down in the next minute, and you'll be fine before Whitney Webb comes on. Furthermore, this podcast is not life advice, investment advice. It, I hold no licenses, no registrations. I hold no qualifications to talk about anything at all. This is just open-minded banter for the purpose of getting ideas out there. My podcast has been affectionately named the worst podcast in history by several people on the iTunes podcast rating store. I encourage you to keep that trend up. Rate this podcast one star and tell everybody how bad it sucks. With that being said, let's get started. There's really nobody that I would rather have on today than the absolutely wonderful and brilliant Whitney Webb. She is a writer and researcher for The Last American Vagabond and formerly a Mint Press news contributor. 
she's contributed to several independent media outlets, and her work has been featured by the Real News Network, the Ron Paul Institute, the Zero Hour, among many others like the QTR Podcast, which really is should be the biggest feather in your cap, Whitney. Um, she's made several radio and television appearances. She is all over YouTube and is the 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. By the way, there is no integrity in journalism anymore, so that's a that's a huge award win for you there. Lovely to have you. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back on. I was just talking to you a second ago, and you said that you've been inundated with interview requests, and you turn them all down just to come on and talk to me. Is that, is that accurate? <laughs> well, I didn't turn them down. Um, you're, you just, uh, you know, our first, I guess. <laughs> How about so. that shit? My listeners should feel very special. I appreciate that. Well, it's great to have you back on. And of course you were the first person that I thought about after I saw the news yesterday that Ghislaine, Jelaine, Ghislaine, however the fuck you want to say her name, Maxwell, has been arrested. And I also happened to recently watch the Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix, which I'm sure you're going to tell me doesn't tell anything close to the real story. But I want to just <laughs> want to start off with a yep. st- stupid question for my stupid brain and just whittle away from here. How much of Maxwell being arrested yesterday, do you think was attributed to that documentary really reigniting a lot of outrage? I don't really know if it's tied to the documentary. Well, here's the thing. Um, I mean, it's possible because it brought the scandal back into the public consciousness, right? And sort of revived the story. And when you look at the indictment, um, and, and the arrest itself and all of this stuff that's happened in recent days with Ghislaine, um, to me, the strategy is to make it look like they're doing something uh, to Ghislaine and then use that to try and memory hold this for real this time. Because after everything that happened with Epstein last year, one of the reasons um, that this case maintained public interest was because of the lack of uh, apparent interest by U.S. authorities to find and even question Ghislaine Maxwell in a meaningful way, because prior to now, you know, she was really, um, at least following Epstein's arrest in 2019, she, uh, you know, spoke through lawyers or, you know, uh, you know, members of her legal team right, to the authorities, right? So um, the fact that, you know, where is Ghislaine and all this stuff was able to um, persist after that is a lot of what had kept the scandal alive. Um, and, and of interest to the public. So if they're able to make it look like they went after her for something, you know, it's kind of harder to rally around that. But I think this will ultimately backfire. But um, based on the charges that she's facing now, um, what I think is likely to happen is she is going to be allowed to post bail. Um, there will be a protracted uh, legal process and she will ultimately get a slap on the wrist. Because if you look at what the charges are for, I mean, it's a it's a joke, honestly. What, and what we, are the charges? So there's one count of perjury for her lying about a handful of things. And then beyond that, the other charges are all based around enticing minors to cross state lines to engage in illegal sex acts with Jeffrey Epstein. But what is just so insane about this indictment is that it says those illegal sex acts Ghislaine Maxwell directly participated in. Right. Right? So they basically say Ghislaine Maxwell sexually assaulted these minors and is also a pedophile, but we're not going to charge her for that. We're going to charge her with convincing these kids to travel for that 
for Epstein's benefit, right? But it, but it, even the indictment says stuff like, oh, well, Ghislaine's the one that told them to take off their clothes and start touching Epstein, and she was also part of those encounters. So they're basically admitting that Ghislaine was involved in, in statutory rape, at, you know, at best, right? You know, it, it and they feels, don't even charge her for that. They it, charge her for this other stuff. It feels like they're setting up for Epstein's first brush with the law, right? With all these kind of phony, watered down charges. I mean, that was the stunning right. thing for me watching the documentary was like many others. After a couple hours of watching the documentary, you start to ask yourself, well, what the fuck is she doing out there just roaming free? Because the documentary laid it out and made it crystal clear that she was participating in the sex acts as well, which makes her just, if not more guilty than Epstein if she was recruiting them as well. Yeah, she was m technically more involved in this than he was even. And pretty much every victim that's come forward and like made their testimony like available to the public says that Ghislaine was much more abusive than Epstein was. So, I mean, this is just egregious, the fact that um, these are the only charges she's facing. And there's only three victims named, uh, it, it's, the indictments are only, you know, it, it, the indictment only relates to three victims during a period between 1994 and 1997, I mean, decades ago. That's all they're charging her for. And she, I mean, this network or, or you know, human trafficking network that Epstein and, and Maxwell ran, I mean, that abused thousands of girls. So the fact this is for three, and it's just about convincing them to move across state lines, I mean, the fact that those are the only charges she's facing to me suggests that they're going to, she, she might even just settle. Or, at the you know, at, at best, she'll go to like Martha Stewart prison, you know, or something like that for a couple of months. Well, there was an article this morning in The Sun that basically said she is willing to name names and she's willing to cooperate. And the gist of what I got from that article immediately after I read it was that that's kind of how they're teeing this up. They're setting it up to make it a situation where, you know, it becomes publicly acceptable that she gets a sweetheart deal if she comes out and she starts naming names or she offers some kind of insight for the federal government into this case that they haven't had before. Do you think that she is going to spill the beans as a part of her settlement? Well, if she does, quote unquote, spill the beans, it's not going to be any information that is ever made public. And would also like to point out that the day before she was arrested, a U.S. federal judge ordered that Virginia Roberts lawyers destroy evidence related to Ghislaine Maxwell's activities in this case. So I think that timing is very interesting. And this is part of why I'm saying they want to memory hole this or they want to make it look like they're doing something, but really keep the details from coming out, right? Because, I mean, they've essentially ordered destruction of evidence, proving further crimes of Ghislaine Maxwell they're not going to charge her for. And they're setting this whole thing up that she's going to cooperate, which means a reduced sentence or that it'll, you know, be some other type of settlement, right? Which is just like, so insane uh, to me, especially when you know the, the extent to which Ghislaine Maxwell was involved in this and, you know, arguably, um, uh, you know, a bigger fish in this whole network than even Epstein himself was, right? And whose family, not just her father, but her siblings, right, have ties to intelligence um, and, and all of this stuff. I mean, it is just, um, it's egregious that this is how this is being um, 
you know, being done really. And they're, you know, patting themselves on the back at their press conferences, you know, like the one yesterday about how this is for the victims and how brave the victims are and all of this stuff. When right. the FBI, you know, one, one of, you know, the first Epstein, uh, Epstein and Maxwell victim to go to the FBI did so in 1996, right? And this indictment is you know, it's 2020, it covers 1994 to 1997, and doesn't even cover uh, what was reported in 1996 by Maria Farmer, um, which was also a sexual assault, right, and attempted murder, if you actually listen to Maria describe her experience, right, it's and, in- and that's not included. It's interesting that this is happening now in the midst of the pandemic. That's something I was thinking about this morning, whether or not the pandemic as a whole and the fact that it has kind of usurped everything that's going on in the media is a means by which to kind of you know make this a wash with this story i mean certainly oh for sure certainly that's what happened after epstein died right or supposedly committed suicide the the pandemic became news and nobody really talked about it anymore and you see these posts kind of online once in a while like Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself but there's still so many unanswered questions there and now I feel like okay well they've finally you know like you said it's been 24 years or 26 years or however they're finally getting Maxwell now but it's happening at this time where really all hell is breaking loose in the country we have all this social unrest we have the pandemic do you think that timing is coincidental Oh, not at all. Um, what's really interesting about the press conference yesterday is that the acting district attorney said that this indictment against Maxwell was a prequel, was it was originally a prequel to the indictments against Epstein from last year, meaning they had this indictment before then to arrest Ghislaine, but they waited until now, um, a year after you know Epstein uh, was indicted and all of that stuff happened. Um, when there is not just the coronavirus dominating the news cycle, but also a lot of the civil unrest in the United States, you know, geopolitical tensions, among other things, that uh, provide plenty of fodder to distract from whatever develops in this situation, right? I found it interesting that they were able to find Maxwell and that she was still in the United States. They've known where she was the entire time. So they've been following her? They even said that. We've been discreetly keeping tabs on her this whole time. And she's been in the U.S. She lives very close to um, her alleged boyfriend, this guy named Scott Borgeson, who has ties to Google's ex-Google's Eric Schmidt, who you know basically in by August, July, and August of last year, when all of this stuff was starting to break, right? People were saying Galen is living with that guy, and then immediately after those reports surfaced, came the fake uh, in and out burger photo op that made it look like she was actually in L.A. Oh, was but that fake? That I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, it was it was staged. It um, was not a real photograph. How do you know it was and staged? It was, um, because the um, um, well, I'd have to relook at uh, I'd have to look at the reports again. But basically, it, it had been photoshopped, um, given like how the background was set up and um, things like that. That she wasn't actually at that In and Out Burger, and that the whole thing was orchestrated by her one of her lawyers. But anyway, the timing of that did her, right, distracted did her lawyers the, admit to it? Um, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Because it, uh, I mean, the the reports are are out there. Um, but you know, I mean, this was also what like several months ago. So the exact details 
of how it was determined it was fake, you know, um, I'm a little foggy on, but I mean, it was, it was pretty widely reported after that initial uh, photo op, right? Because, you know, it got a lot of coverage, but what it did is it made it look like Ghislaine was on the West Coast when those reports had surfaced that she was, you know, on the East Coast in New England, which is where she was ultimately found in this, um, house in New Hampshire that the FBI knew she had purchased seven months ago. So she's been in that house for at least seven months in New Hampshire, and prior to that was believed to have been at, at this um, nearby uh, residence that belongs to her, you know, alleged rumored boyfriend, who's the CEO is. of this. The, uh, <laughs> the widely circulated photos of Ghislaine Maxwell, the ex-girlfriend and accused madam of Jeffrey Epstein, at an In-N-Out Burger in Los Angeles was staged by her attorney, according to a DailyMail.com investigation. Last Thursday, the New York Post published what it described as the first photos of Maxwell since Epstein's death the Saturday before. It showed her in a gray hoodie and glasses and reading a book while dining outside with a tray of food and two cups in front of her. However... There appear to be a number of discrepancies in the photos and the post report suggesting that the images were misleadingly presented. The photos, the photos metadata is tagged with Meadowgate, a media company owned by Leah Safian, Maxwell's attorney, DailyMail.com reported. The dog next to Maxwell's feet in the photos also appears to be Safian's dog, Dexter, Daily Mail noted. The publication unearth Safian's private Instagram account, which includes multiple photos of the dog. Safian has not yet responded. The photos also show a poster for Good Boys, a newly released movie at a nearby bus shelter. But according to the Mail on Sunday, the bus shelter has most recently been advertising a hospital. Wow, so that's very interesting. Yeah, because I remember when those photos popped up and... I was like, well, what the fuck is she doing at an In-N-Out Burger having a, having a hamburger? She's sitting in the middle of the fucking outdoor restaurant area just going about life. I remember when that happened. Well, right. And remember the other crazy thing about that picture is the book she was reading, which was about the life and death of CIA operatives. Oh, is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't. And she's sitting there posing all smugly, like out in the open, right? And making it like, you know. I'm wherever. And then after, you know, reports like that to distract from the fact that she's been in New England, apparently this whole time, you know, all these reports, oh, she's in France. Oh, she's in England. Oh, she's in Israel. Oh, she's here. She's there. I mean, she was basically treated like Carmen San Diego, And it was like this tabloid-esque coverage of, of Ghislaine really this entire time referring to her as things like Jeffrey Epstein's gal pal or his close associate or his longtime girlfriend and stuff like this instead of what she really is, a serial sex trafficker, a rapist, and a pedophile at the same you know degree that Epstein was, if not more so. Right, if not more. It's wild to think that what was unearthed in the Netflix documentary could be investigated and put together by a couple of filmmakers and that that stuff was so widely available. And when Epstein was arrested the second time that she wasn't brought in immediately with him. Well, that's because, you know, what I would argue is that this whole operation, first of all, state-sponsored, Epstein was not the head of it. A lot of the way the documentary, for example, sets it up and like mainstream media, the narrative in general sets it up is that this was all done for Epstein and now that he's gone, it's over and it's not like that, okay? 
But, I mean, really, Ghislaine was, you know, uh, much more involved to an extent than Epstein was, right? Epstein was just um, very charming and charismatic, not unlike Maxwell herself, and was able to, like, you know, have a lot of these social connections and whatnot. But a lot of the, the um, you know, I guess the glue that hold the whole operation together, right, is Maxwell, who was, you know, doing the recruiting um, you know, and, and managing all of this stuff for Epstein, really. And Epstein, you know, um, basically spent his whole, you know, day based on, you know, the amount of girls he was abusing, abusing girls. He didn't have time for the rest of that stuff. So Maxwell was basically managing, you know, this project or, you know, what was higher up in the food chain than Epstein was. And how did she link up with Epstein to begin with again? Well, officially, it's in 1991, but really it's before that and was in the 1980s when um, – because by the time that Epstein was recruited um, by, um, you know, Israeli military intelligence in the mid-1980s, he had already been dating Ghislaine Maxwell um, for an unspecified amount of time because he was brought into that fold by Robert Maxwell, her father. And he had wanted to bring Epstein on as sort of a way to, he thought that, you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine might get married or something like that. It was a way to sort of bring him into the family business, so to speak. But by that point, Epstein had already been involved in intelligence operations, right, and um, money laundering and and things like that. So, I mean, it wasn't like that was his first um, foray into that type of business, but it started then and really the sexual blackmail operation um, that began in New York, right? That began in 1991. It's interesting that she is still referred to commonly as, you know, his madam or just his gal pal or, somebody that was around because the impression I got from what you're saying now and from what I saw in the documentary was that, again, Epstein was too busy going about his business to, you know, do the recruiting of these women to, you know, make sure that they were flying in and flying out and that she handled a lot of that. But really, they were in a decades-long intimate relationship, too. I mean, in essence, her and Epstein are are a unit. So it's astonishing to see them kind of sequestered in the way that they're being handled in this case. For sure. And, and the fact that this is how they're approaching the whole thing with Maxwell, um, you know, um, I think is really telling, right? Um, and, and it's also worth pointing out, you know, she has fam- family ties to intelligence. I mean, her father was, you know, has been referred to as like Israel's super spy and was involved in a ton of intelligence operations that not only involved Israeli intelligence, but also U.S. intelligence, including Iran-Contra and the Promise software scandal. Well, what the hell do you think was happening over the last year since Epstein's death while she's been out kind of roaming free? What is the government well, been no doing? One... Um, well, as far as the FBI quote unquote investigation goes, I mean, it obviously has been going nowhere in, in any real sense. Uh, here's a really good example of that. The guy that was even above the so-called food chain or pecking order of this whole thing, right? Above Epstein and Maxwell, it's Leslie Wexner. Right. Okay. This whole time, Leslie Wexner has been in the U.S., and everyone knows that he lives in New Albany, Ohio, and that he owns that whole freaking town, and that the police department there is also his private security at his gate and stuff like that. He's not a hard guy to find, 
right? But he's a rich guy. He's one of the richest guys in all of Ohio, and he's really well-connected, right? And the FBI hasn't questioned him. He just, through a spokesperson, said, oh, I, I was just deceived by Epstein, providing no evidence for that, when all of the evidence points in the complete opposite direction, right. because all of the money for this whole thing came from Wexner, right? Because Epstein wasn't a billionaire. He was made to look like a billionaire. And that was all by virtue of his connections to Leslie Wexner. And there, you know, and, and when Maria Farmer reported this to the FBI, the first one to do so, in 1996, she told the FBI, Leslie Wexner is the head of the snake of, of all of this, right? And, and she said that, you know, when she, it was very clear to hear when she was clear to her when she was talking to the FBI that they knew exactly what Wexner was doing, what was going on. And think? there has been no effort to put any sort of legal pressure on him at all. The only thing that's happened to him is, you know, issues for his company L Brands and Victoria's Secret and his, you know, um, business portfolio. Right. That's all that's happened to that guy. And he's the one that facilitated this on a, even more so than Ghislaine because he's where the money for it all came from. That travel that Ghislaine enticed these girls to do that's in these charges in the indictment, that travel was paid for with Wexner money. It couldn't have happened without him. What do you think the odds are that they bring him in? Zero. They won't do it. They haven't even questioned the guy. I mean, I think honestly the only reason they're doing this with Ghislaine is so people stop asking where is Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah, but that's been, you know, the next kind of next of kin after Epstein. Since everybody can't ask about Epstein anymore or that has died down, that this has, you know, Maxwell is so close that it is painfully obvious to even right. the outside observer that it is ridiculous that she has not been brought in. And so you think that this arrest is more of a response to trying to quell that versus trying to actually find justice? It's absolutely not about finding justice. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. Uh, this is not about justice for the victims at all. Uh, if, if that were the case, they wouldn't have just ordered one of the most prominent victims' lawyers to destroy evidence. Yeah, what was that? You mentioned that arrest. before. What Was that in a separate civil case, or what was that? It's 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 one of uh, the cases involving Virginia Roberts, who's probably like the most well-known uh, victim of this whole um, operation, who's been sort of the public face of the victims, right? And they claim that her lawyers illegally obtained documents relating to Ghislaine Maxwell's um, criminal... Uh, activities in the scandal in order that they be destroyed. Part of a separate case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, separate from the, the indictment, right? Because it's in a different uh, district. So like right. uh, Lane was indicted by the Southern District of New York, the, the district attorney's office of that district. Right. And this was a separate um, district, I believe in Virginia um, or around DC or something like that. I'd have to double check. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's separate and has to do, but it has to do directly with Ghislaine, right? It right. has to do with information on her specifically. Why would they order that destroyed right before they moved to arrest her? You know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And why would they only indict her on these charges, right? That precede, for example, Virginia Roberts being recruited by Maxwell. Right. This, these indictments are from 94 to 97, 
right? I mean, Virginia Roberts, that was like in 2000 and after when she was there. And a lot, but you know, what's interesting is that by keeping it at 94 to 97, it, it avoids a lot of the most prominent people that um, Ghislaine helped traffic these girls to beyond Epstein, specifically Alan that's, Dershowitz that's and Prince Andrew. Yeah, that's interesting because to the outside observer and somebody that's not familiar with the case, they're not looking at, oh, it's only from 94 to 97 and that excludes certain people. And they're not looking at, oh, well, the charges are bringing minors over state lines and not sexual assault or rape of minors. They're just saying, oh, well, they finally got Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, finally. But they didn't, they didn't get her. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> um, these charges, I mean, the fact that they admit that she was involved in pedophilia and statutory rape and they don't charge her for that. I mean, that is the most blatant uh, slap in the face to anyone that would like want justice. Right. That's in and the, the fact indictment. That saying, it, 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 yeah, it says it. And even the, the acting uh, district attorney at the press conference yesterday repeated it and said she was involved in the sex acts. And the indictment describes her ordering at least one of the victims to take off her clothes and start touching Epstein. And, 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 the, and that Maxwell and, and this girl were involved in this like threesome, basically. Why is she not being charged for that if this is about protecting children and stopping pedophiles and all this stuff? So anyone saying Ghislaine Maxwell being arrested is proof that like the U.S. government or the Trump administration is going after the pedophiles and they admit that she's a pedophile but don't charge her for it. I mean, it's not going after a pedophile. You know what I mean? It's um, make, trying to make the story go away or trying to make, make it look like they're doing something but actually letting this lady off uh, like in the most insanely light. I mean, slap on the wrist is what it looks to be unless there are more charges announced, which seems unlikely at this point based on how they've managed this whole case thus far. The thing about Dershowitz is interesting because I remember in the documentary him sitting there and, you know, boldly proclaiming his innocence and then actually saying, I challenge one of the girls, I can't remember, I challenge so-and-so to come out and say that, you know, we perform sex acts or something. He makes this big, bold, and then the woman, like, came out the next day and said it or something, right? What, what was that? <laughs> you know, the whole Dershowitz thing, I mean, his stories claims about what happened are absurd he claims he got massages at epstein's estate but that he kept his underwear on and oh, it was yeah. an old woman babushka whatever uh -huh. that down. right um no one else in this case at all has ever talked about there being old women at epstein's estates <laughs> also during this period of time when dershowitz you know, was uh, right alleged to have been involved in, you know, the abuse of minors. He wrote this op-ed arguing that the age of consent should be lowered to the age when a girl first gets her period, as young as like 12, right? That's not a good look. If you're trying to defend if you're trying to defend yourself against pedophilia claims, that's not a good look traditionally. <laughs> no. No, and the fact that he's like it's so absurd that someone would accuse me of that. It's like, well, you were just talking about how it should be legal to have sex with 12-year-olds in a public newspaper. And it's funny to watch people like Clinton come out and try to refute 
that they were involved when the photos are there, the flight logs are there. And then in the documentary, my favorite was the guy that worked managing his estate. The, um, I guess he was like the, the landscaper or the property keeper or whatever for his estate down in the islands. And he was just like, yeah, uh, I saw Bill Clinton sitting on the porch all the time. You know, right there, a couple feet from me, Bill Clinton, former president, can't fucking miss him. You know, and every once in a while I'd drive by him. Bill Clinton would be here again. And it's it's stunning to watch him recall that, of obviously telling the truth, effortlessly speaking about it, you know, not giving any tells right. that he's just making shit up for no reason. And then you see the flight logs, and then you see the photos, and you wonder, like, how can they how can they still refute this? And, oh, the argument you want to make now, Whitney, is that, oh, well, I was on the island, and I did get massaged, but it wasn't by the, uh, the uh, roster of young women that this guy constantly had at his house. Like, Alan, like... One of these guys is going to say, oh, I went in there and, uh, you know, there was this uh, sexy young debutante and uh, I was offered a massage from her, but I turned her down in favor of the uh, 60-year-old. It's like, come on, you know, just you got to put two and two together. And I don't even need I don't even need to know that you're Bill Clinton. I don't need to know that you're Alan Dershowitz. I don't need to know anything about you. All I need to know is you're a man. You're on the flight logs. You're in the fucking... You're on the island. You're in the massage room. Like, come on. You can fucking lead a horse to water here, and people aren't making this connection? Right. Well, really quick, here's the thing about Bill Clinton and Epstein. The whole thing about um, the way it's set up now anyway, even the people being like, look at the flight logs, look at all this stuff, I would argue it's a limited hangout. And that's because the official narrative – says that Bill Clinton did not get involved with Epstein until he stopped being president of the United States. And that is a lie. Why Bill Clinton was a sitting president, he was going to Epstein's residences in New York. Everyone was ordered out, but the personal chef and the young girls. And there were witnesses to this, that this, this happened in 1990, between 1995 and 1996, at least twice. Before then, you know, I mean, Epstein, as soon as Clinton was in office, Epstein started visiting the White House. He made several White House trips and met with the deputy chief of staff. He was going to White House donor dinners with Ghislaine Maxwell. In 1995, one of Clinton's closest, uh, the Clinton family's, you know, biggest, uh, I don't really, well, donors, but also just like, you know, um, people in their inner circle, right? Lynn Forrester, now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild was talking with, you know, this is from the Clinton Presidential Library, right? Sent a letter to Clinton saying, you know, oh, I saw you at Ted Kennedy's house and I wanted to talk to you about more things, but I know you're, you know, you're a busy man. And so instead of talking to you about everything I wanted to talk to you about, I talked, you know, we talked about only two things during what she calls her 15 seconds of access, right? And the things she talked to him about in those 15 seconds that were the most important for her to discuss with Bill Clinton, right? Uh, currency stabilization and Jeffrey Epstein. This is in 1995, right? So for Clinton to not know about Epstein and then be seen by people that worked for him in New York, you know, and Ghislaine Maxwell screaming, the president's coming and stuff like this and like getting people to to decorate and all this stuff. And then they're all ordered out except the girls and the chef 
who, by the way, was murdered recently. Well, I can't really say murdered, but a very interesting death happening in the middle of the pandemic. No one could attend his funeral. There was no autopsy, right? Um, he just appeared dead. Said the, the headline from the, the local paper in Michigan said he died suddenly. Doesn't elaborate. Right. Um, all very interesting, right? Um, so the fact that the narrative keeps it on, well, Bill Clinton was on the plane and Bill Clinton is guilty of this. It all focuses on on what happened after he was president. But there was a relationship there when he was president, which is, you know, has huge ramifications if you think about it, because Epstein was involved in sexual blackmail, right, and was ha- hosting events where Clinton had no security detail and was around tons of minors, while president of the United States. It's astonishing, too. I saw the photograph this morning of Ghislaine Maxwell at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. You know, and that was 2010, I think. And she was involved in the Clinton Global Initiative and all of this stuff to a large degree. But again, this is all after... this is all after he leaves office. But also, I mean, Epstein and, and Ghislaine were involved with Clinton Foundation stuff, which, you know, was a slush fund and all of this stuff. And, I mean, that was also one of Epstein's specialties, aside from, you know, this this blackmail trafficking thing, was um, doing shady-ass shit in, in finance and through special investment vehicles and, quote-unquote, charities and all of this stuff, moving money around. I mean, that's how he got his start, Right. Didn't Epstein have some picture of Bill Clinton in a dress or something hanging up in his New York apartment too? Or was that yeah, a rumor? Yeah, it's it's Bill Clinton wearing the Monica Lewinsky dress. Just hanging basically. up at his house? Yeah. Normal. He also has a picture of George Bush with a paper plane smiling and there's two uh, uh, towers crumbled on the ground. Normal. Normal. File it under normal, Whitney. We've all got paintings of each other <laughs> and each other in each other's homes in uh you know right. i have pictures of all my male friends and dresses hanging around my house anybody that's been here uh will attest to that but yeah just just fucking file that under totally normal you know what the interesting thing is too when you talk about all these people of power and the people that have been kind of associated with maxwell and, and epstein and i have friends of mine that are really hell-bent on this conspiracy theory or, you know, whatever you want to call it, theory, that people in power, politicians, people in, you know, super powerful roles, the Bilderberg Group type people, that they are actively hosting and participating in, in some global pedophile ring. And I know that's like one of the biggest conspiracy theories out there and I know there was the whole Pizzagate thing that happened and I I always kind of dismiss it but really you don't have to draw too long of a line to get from people like Prince Andrew and people like Bill Clinton and you know people like Trump being associated with Epstein and in that theory I mean it's still a jump I think but I don't know. Did you ever look into all the Pizzagate stuff? Um, no. But, I mean, it's worth pointing out, right, that, you know, beyond the Epstein scandal, there have been a series of pedophile scandals among the powerful in the U.S. 
um, that have been the subject of massive cover-ups, one of them being the best known, or, or the, I guess, not even best known, the best case study, I guess you could say of that, was the Franklin scandal um, in the 1980s and early 1990s that involved underage uh, boys, call boys, it was referred to in, in local D.C. media, being given midnight tours of the freaking White House while George Bush Sr. was president, right? Normal. Right. But that was just one aspect of that. Right. I mean, it involved a lot of very powerful Republican operatives, you know, so like a lot of the politicians that got wrapped up in the Epstein thing were Democrats. Right. You know, you have like what Bill Richardson, um, George Mitchell, um, Bill Clinton. Right. And, you know, but on the other side, a lot of the past ones, including this one, you know, that was run, uh, the Franklin scandal that involved this uh, GOP operative, Larry King, involved another uh, well-known Republican lobbyist at the time named Craig Spence, right? And also the fact that, you know, one of the speakers of the House, Republican speakers of the House in Congress, Dennis Hastert, known pedophile. I mean, that's like on the books, right? I mean, he was charged with that and actually ended up countersuing his own victim <laughs> and getting away with it, right? Even though it was like, came out that he like is a pedophile, right? So, it, you know, this is both parties and this stuff has gone on. But, you know, here's the thing. I mean, um, I think a lot of, um, trying to think of the best way to phrase this, but if you want um, if you're like, for an example, an intelligence agency and you want influence, for example, over the legislative or executive branch, you know, you want someone who's easily compromised, you right. know, yeah, or is course. compromisable. Right. right? Yeah, and, of course. And what you and there's a couple strategies for this. They're already there. You realize they're compromisable and you compromise them so they do what you want. Or you compromise someone who's not in power and you guide them into positions of power. It's the old uh, the old honeypot trick, right? Right. And this is what happens. And the CIA and also Israeli intelligence, right? And arguably other intelligence agencies too, but a lot of them are connected to the CIA. Like Korean intelligence had like a sexual blackmail up in the U.S. for a period of time, but South Korea and the U.S. are like very closely uh, tied, right, in terms of their national security um, states, right? Um, you know, this has been going on in the U.S. Uh, for decades and decades. It was originally pioneered uh, by the Jewish and Italian mobs who came together to the National Crime Syndicate, who got in bed uh, during World War II with U.S. intelligence, the Office of Strategic Services, which became the CIA, and that um, after the war, you know, this alliance with organized crime justified by wartime necessity, it continued, it deepened. And they, uh, you know, the CIA obviously saw major benefit in blackmail, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and so, you know, these tactics they employed and also, you know, so they had people from the mob uh, manage that for them and also added a lot of mob people to their assassination teams. And I mean, this is documented history, right? So that type of stuff going on as far back, right, um, with U.S. intelligence sponsorship, uh, early to the earliest days of the CIA really. And they've never been held accountable for that. Why would they be, be held accountable now? Yeah, right. That's a good question. What do you think the odds are just to touch on? I would love to hear your thoughts on the Pizzagate thing. If you ever look into it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because a lot of it does sound like bullshit to me that, you know, the, the signs hanging up at the pizza place, you know, are the international signs for pedophilia. It's like, all right, they're fucking circles and squares and stuff. But 
On the other hand, I also did read some of the emails that were associated with the scandal, and some of them do seem a little weird. You know, there's emails like, hey, make sure for your trip to Washington, D.C., you bring plenty of hot dogs, you know, capitalized with extra relish. You know, and I'm just like, what? Who the fuck would ever say that in an email? But, like, what are they talking about? There were several emails like that where, like, that is strange. Like, what's a normal situation where you're, you know, one whatever, one Washington insider is emailing another one telling them not to forget the moist and crisp hot dog buns or something like (laughs) that? Nobody would ever fucking write that. Like, yeah. So. Well, I didn't, I didn't really look into Pizzagate or any of that stuff, right? But I did notice, for example, and this is just documented, you can't really refute this, right? Tony Podesta, you know, high-powered lobbyist guy, brother of John Podesta. Right. The art in his house. Oh. What the hell? I mean, have you seen it? It's like kids, paintings of children that are like naked or half-naked. The expression on their face is of fear, and they're tied up. Yeah, I'm looking Who, I'm looking at some of the has that in their house, you know? Some of the examples right now they say it's so bad that journalists won't even show it. And if you look up uh Tony Podesta's art, it is uh, you know, look, here's a photograph of obviously young kids in uh, what appears to be like their undergarments. Here's one of a young kid that's being attacked by some kind of fucking monster coming out of its bed here's another one of a kid taped to the wall these are like brutal images these these are actually like yeah. quite disturbing i'm looking at about 10 of them it reminds me who i mean these are way, wants these pictures are, like that in their house yeah it's, you know oh i'm gonna go to my living room and like make a tea and i'm gonna stare at a picture of a kid that's scared and in bondage yeah this I kid's mean, what like literally fuck? fucking tied up against the wall this kid yeah. Yeah, that's that's just not normal. You know, it's just I, I don't yeah. look I don't get art either. That's the other thing. I was talking to I was talking to I was talking to an art collector like a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and I just don't get it. You know, I, I, I don't I don't get it. You know, I don't get the banana duct tape to the wall selling for $120,000. And to be honest with you, this fucking guy didn't really sound like he could explain it to me either. Because I kept asking him about it, and he kept changing the fucking subject. And I'm like, you know, so so look, I'm not an art guy, but what I'll say is these are far more disturbing images than the ones that Epstein had at his house. Because I believe in the documentary, they were showing his art as well. And it was also, like, young... Uh, he had the one girl was the one girl that he brought was um, commissioned to paint. Uh, she was like painting her younger sister or something, wasn't she? In in paintings for Epstein. Uh, her younger sister, no, but pictures that she had of her younger sister when she was really young, like playing outside or like in like little kid bathing suits or like in the tub or whatever, were in her personal belongings, right? And when she was staying at Wexner's estate, right, she was hired to be, um, she was first Epstein's artist in residence and then passed off to be Wexner's artist in residence. Ghislaine Maxwell and Epstein stole those pictures, went through her personal stuff without her knowledge and took them, right? Yeah, not normal. If you haven't looked up Tony Podesta's art collection, 
I mean, it'll probably disturb the shit out of you, but I feel like you gotta see it just because of how fucking crazy it is. And again, I know there's some bullshit artist explanation for the, oh, this isn't, you know, this is a commentary on something else. It's like, yeah, it's also a young (laughs) child in bondage. Like, I don't understand it. But, uh, so what do you think the chances are of Maxwell making it out alive here? We got the pandemic, which is like a great scapegoat if you want somebody to just disappear. And we saw what happened or what they told people happened to Jeffrey Epstein. Everybody's already alluding to the forthcoming suicide. What do you think? I don't think she's going to really, I think she's going to be allowed to post bail. And I think coronavirus is going to be part of that excuse because oftentimes, you know, there's been a lot of stories about how coronavirus, um, you know, prisoners, prisons are, you know, um, hot spots, if you want, whatever you want to call them for the virus. So she can argue it can, you know, will put her at like, you know, risk uh, of contracting the virus. And given the charges, the light charges that she's facing, she could easily argue uh, to have, you know, bail available to her, right? And not be in prison until after she, after there's a, a trial and she's sentenced, right? I never really, I don't want to sound dehumanizing, but I never really understood the argument of we have to let the prisoners out. It's just, prison is a quarantine. If somebody in the prison gets the virus and other people get the virus, well, it's because you're in prison. You know, I, you just start releasing people. You release the criminals instead. I, I don't know that if that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I saw in like California, they had released like six or seven sex offenders early from prison. I was like, yeah, you know, the virus is okay. Like they're a sex offender. Right. Well, Maybe they release the sex jail. offenders, but they don't release the guys that are in prison because they had like a tiny amount of pot on them. Right. You know what I mean? So what's going on there? I mean, honestly, though, I think a lot of it has to do um, with sort of like the way the U.S. is sort of going. You know, it seems to me that there is an interest on behalf of powerful interests of the state and and elsewhere in generating as much freaking chaos in the U.S. right now as possible. Right. Do you think that any of that could be coming from outside of the United States? Because it looks like there is a real main vein in the country right now that is replete with Marxism and replete with further trying to divide the country. And certainly it appears to me as though the media is doing their part in that. What do you think the odds are that there is a party outside of the United States that's basically helping tear the nation apart from the inside out? Um, Oh, I think it's very high. Um, But I think, you know, Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this. The U.S. national security state has an interest in those types of divisions being higher than ever. And a lot of times they work with, you know, uh, intelligence services or um, private companies or the economic elite of other countries, including so-called, quote unquote, rival states. So, so um, as an example, you know, um, I recently had a report out about how this there's a, a new system that's in active in Rhode Island is said to be active in other states that's going to use artificial intelligence to predict who might have coronavirus in the future and also determine which areas of the country 
um, or localities or neighborhoods to subject to lockdown, right? And also um, to use those same sort of like uh, AI predictive analytics um, to mandate medical treatment for people um, that's mandated and controlled by the state, right? This is designed by Israel's intelligence service and their military, right? On the other side of things, a lot of those creepy surveillance companies are also Chinese, right? So you have, you know, some of this infrastructure, creepy uh, Orwellian surveillance infrastructure being set up by a quote-unquote ally Israel, and then you have some of that infrastructure also being set up um, by Chinese companies. Even though we're supposed to be like, you know, in a trade war with them and all this stuff, I mean, when you get down to how things, you know, are ultimately decided and really work, a lot of times it's between the economic elite of so-called rival countries because they speak the same language. They speak the language of money and business, right? right? Yeah, lest we forget, too, that all of these extra technological surveillance measures that are being put into place um, are for a problem that ostensibly we are going to have somewhat of a solution to relatively soon, whether that is herd immunity or whether it is a vaccine or whether it is a better understanding of the virus through more raw data and coming up with ways for a therapeutic or other ways to treat it. You know, the idea of starting to amass this massive Orwellian infrastructure to track where these coronavirus hotspots are going to be. It's like, talk about fucking being late to the party. You know, it's July. Oh, this, sure. this thing's been here for who the fuck knows how long, maybe eight months. You know, what? what is the... That would have been great eight months ago. I could have seen a real use for that and a real purpose. But we... Even even Dr. Fauci is laying down his arms to some degree and saying, all right, yeah, like we should get kids back to school. We should reopen. And it just, to me, and I don't want to sound again dehumanizing or like a dickhead because I have had family members that have been tragically affected by the virus. And it's something that, you know, my family takes very seriously and I take seriously. But it also seems as though the end game is herd immunity and the end game is this thing is going to run its course regardless i get the argument right, of not wanting the orwellian to- shit is still going to be there even when the virus is gone here's an example the contact tracing software that is now built into the operating systems of every apple and android smartphone in the united states has been used by police departments for tracking people either in relation to protest civil unrest or other activities completely unrelated to health or public health, right? Um, what does that tell you? That these things have dual purposes and they will be used as such and they already are being used as such, right? What happens when the divisions in these countries, be, uh, in, in, in the US, right, becomes completely even more exacerbated than it is now uh, post the 2020 election, right? What happens then with this Orwellian panopticon that they have armed, that, that they're creating, right. you know, justified as, oh, it's about the virus, right? When, in fact, a lot of these uh, technologies have been shown to actually be counterproductive or hamper government coronavirus response. An example, um, the first country to do uh, this Orwellian contact tracing type of software thing was Israel, and it was managed by Shin Bet, which is their domestic intelligence agency, right? Um, A few weeks afterwards, 
an association, prominent association of Israeli physicians said, this is not, this is actually hampering our ability to respond and mitigate the pandemic. What does Shin Bet and Israel's government do? Do they modify it? Um, at the doc, uh, uh, based on the, these physicians' recommendations to assist them and respond to the pandemic? No, they do nothing. They keep it the same. Why? Because it serves a purpose for them. It's benefiting them somehow, but it's not benefiting the doctors. It's not benefiting pandemic response. So what's it really about? Yeah, you mentioned going into the election and with the way that tensions are in the states, I really have trouble envisioning a scenario where over the next four months, things don't get worse regardless of the outcome of the election. So they, they know it's going to get worse. And they've actually been saying this, the U.S. national security state, you know, uh, the CIA, the NSA, DHS, um, the FBI. Right. They've even issued joint statements. Right. Saying that it will get worse <laughs> since like last November. Right. When based on, you know, even mainstream media reporting, they knew that, you know, the coronavirus had pandemic potential, right? right. And they were telling NATO and the IDF and all the stuff about it. Well, I mean, right? the, the social unrest, too, is what I'm referring to. I think they've known that, though, for a long time. I mean, these divisions take time to set up and exacerbate. The divisions we're seeing now in the U United States didn't just appear now, Right. I mean, since especially since 2016, a lot of that has just been fomented to a huge degree, right? right? I mean, Russiagate being a, a prime example of that, where now you have the so-called quote-unquote left in the U.S., you know, uh, supporting Bush-era neocons right. <laughs> and, and stuff like that, you know, making them like arguably an even more like pro-war party than the Republicans and stuff like this, right? I yeah. mean, and making it so like, you know, oh, well, people that support Trump believe this. Well, I'm just going to believe the opposite out of principle because, right. you know, Trump or anti-science and stupid and whatever, you know. I mean, it's really just been about exacerbating that type of mentality, um, this black and white mentality that, you know, ultimately leads to these types of divisions, right? Um, I mean, it, it's been around for a long time, like I said, right, because, it you know, this whole left-right paradigm uh, prevents – um, public discourse arriving to the point where it, it becomes clear to people that both parties are fantastically corrupt right. and oftentimes support the same policies. You know, they all support the Fed. They all support endless war. You know, they all pretty much raise taxes. They all do the same shit, basically, except for a couple of key, you know, maybe like differences on social issues, whether it's gay rights or abortion, or things like that. And that's where all of the political uh, attention is oftentimes focused, right, as opposed to the policies that they all agree on. And there's no debate or discussion over those, right? Yeah, it's really fascinating to see how the stances of people on the left specifically have changed and how, you know, I said in a prior podcast being liberal used to be an indication of, you know, wanting to be pro free speech and pro open minded discussion. <laughs> not anymore, right? No, yeah. not at all. And you're just seeing a lot of weird, strange behavior. I mean, did you see the Seattle mayor finally shut down that autonomous zone in the middle of Seattle? But it was only the day after the protesters showed they up were at, at his her house. house. <laughs> yeah. 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 
it's so it's like the the hypocrisy is blinding there and it's almost like it's almost like they're not even paying attention to what they're saying but then all of a sudden when it affects them it's a very it's a very different story right oh for sure but you know um i think a lot of this they they um you know i talked about this before i did a series on these simulations that were being run by companies tied to both israeli and u.s intelligence Mm -hmm. um over the course of the past year that have basically simulated um complete chaos on the day of election caused by alleged foreign adversaries and uh the provocation of civil war and civil unrest in the United States and the quote unquote end of US democracy. And then at the same time, you have all these mainstream media reports, the most striking of which I found to be a report in Rolling Stone from last year that said um, foreign meddling in the 2020 election, even a year before anything happens, right, is not only inevitable, but even foreign hacking or meddling or whatever isn't even necessary. Merely the fear of foreign meddling is enough right. to reduce confidence in the U.S. electoral system so much that it can never recover. To me, a lot of this setup of the narrative in mainstream media and by all these intelligence agencies is because they are planning to move to a system that does not involve even the illusion of democracy. Right. And fear is and a more huge... chaos they create, right, the more they can justify uh, a greater imposition of quote-unquote order, Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's an excuse for more government. And fear is exactly what I was going to bring up right before you brought it up. I was I was literally that was going to be the next uh, point that I made, which is that the media and everybody else is just so scared. And when you get people in that feared mindset, just like people that are prone to having panic attacks or anxiety attacks because their fight or flight modes on all the time. Their decision-making is not rational, it's not thought out, it's not based on facts, it's based on reactionary emotion, it's based on uh, adrenaline, it's based on insecurity is another one. So if people aren't scared shitless that they are going to die when they leave their house because of the virus... You know, now people are being scared of being called racist in this country. And if you are and and people will. Peter Schiff said this on my podcast a couple days ago. You know, people will do anything to prove that they're not a racist, even if it means, you know, subjecting themselves to whatever ridicule or 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 changing their value set or, you know, you have to be secure with who you are. You have to be secure in in. Um, and have confidence uh, in the person that you know yourself to be. And you have to be able to examine things objectively and look at them on your own because the fear state, you just made a beautiful point. It doesn't even need to be meddling anymore. It can just be the thought of meddling. And when we govern based on that fear and that like reactionary mindset, it just leads to more government and less civil liberties. Do you agree? Yeah. Totally. And I mean, we've seen that with the pandemic, right? A lot of uh, civil liberties have been given up. They won't be coming back, right? And they were justified, you know, as public health, but they really didn't have very much to do with public health. And they will be there long after the pandemic is gone. Yeah. And if you're a think for yourself or you're a conspiracy theorist, you're you're a nut, you're a loon, you're a crazy person. Hey, well, remember the FBI last year said, quote unquote, conspiracy theorists are a domestic terror threat. Even though many conspiracy theories 
as we've often said, turn into conspiracy fact. Sometimes it just takes some time. For the well, like the Epstein thing, right? Even before last year, talking about Epstein being an intelligence-connected uh, pedophile sex trafficker, I mean, people would roll their eyes at you, but then it right. came out, <laughs> right? Exactly. That's a perfect example. Well, listen, Whitney, I want to thank you so much for taking an hour of your time this morning. I know that you uh, you got a full day planned, but thanks so much for coming on and speaking to me and, and giving this awesome information to my listeners. And if you want... Uh, what are you working on now and what's going on and where can my listeners find your stuff if they want more information? Well, I'm, I'm working on my book on, on the Epstein scandal. should be out in the next couple of months or so. Um, you can support my efforts to write that book because the publisher um, is small given the subject material, right? So um, didn't really get an advance. So a lot of that is just being funded exclusively by my Patreon uh, that you can find there um, and sign up for if you'd like to support that. Um, uh, you can also follow my work on, uh, I tweet about it. My Twitter handle is underscore Whitney Webb. I'm currently writing for the last American vagabond. I have a new article that came out yesterday, um, that has ties to, uh, Leslie Wexner of the whole Epstein orbit, Israeli intelligence, this AI, I sort of alluded to it earlier, this AI predictive, um, you know, population monitoring tool that's in Rhode Island, partnered with Mayo Clinic now and is set to announce a slate of new partnerships with the U.S. states and things like that um, that is being rolled out right now. Um, and I have, you know, some other articles um, in the works, too, that are unrelated to Epstein. But, of course, I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff um, <laughs> with Ghislaine Maxwell in the next couple of days, just given um, recent events. Um, so you can follow me for that. Um, I'll be having a Patreon um, exclusive podcast. It's going to be a deep dive, not just on Maxwell, um, but her father and her siblings who are often very overlooked, but also very much in that same um, intelligence orbit, not in sexual blackmail. But remember, Robert Maxwell was not was involved in lots of other things, including uh, technology-powered espionage, which is where um, several of Ghislaine's uh, siblings are involved. Right, including odd ties to 9-11 um, with some of them. So it's definitely, um, I'll be pursuing that in the Patreon exclusive thing. I'll make it public at some point, but it'll be for patrons first. Um, and I am also um, uh, ha have my own podcast now, but I don't make episodes as frequently as like you do, right? Because I have a lot of other stuff going on, trying to do a book and all this. But occasionally, you know, like on a monthly basis, I'll be having like some deep dive stuff like this. Ghislaine Maxwell is my one, um, going to be my uh, podcast for July, right? So um, it's called Unlimited Hangout. So you can find it that way. Um, and I think that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Whitney, thank you so much. Enjoy your July 4th weekend. And we hope to hear back from you again soon. You're welcome on any time. And you damn well know that. <laughs> All right. No, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Always, uh, always fun to be on. All right. Speak to you soon. Thank you again. That was the one and only Whitney Webb, the wonderful and brilliant Whitney Webb. Stoked that she could come on. I am chock full of things to do this weekend this nice long weekend folks and what a better way to spend your day than to maybe get a little exercise in kick back crack open a cold one and support the united states of america and our independence it's going to be a wonderful weekend hopefully no matter what your political affiliation whatever your age race color gender sexual preference religion Hopefully we all just kick back together this weekend and uh, throw down for one nice, big, relaxed, good time. Because that's what I'm going to be working on, folks. All right, I am the fuck out of here. Peace.